Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 127. The name of this message is, What Do You Want, A House or a Home? And there is a difference. There was a series of billboard advertisements on a prominent highway in our country that featured as its motto the words, How to Turn Your House into a Home. And on the billboards were photographs. One was a picture of a brand new kitchen with new cabinets, new sink, how to turn your house or turn your house into a home. The next was a brand new patio off the backyard, turn your house into a home. There's a publication called The Professional Builder that asked Americans what the ideal home is. That's how they phrased it. What is your view of an ideal home? It is, according to this survey, a one-story, single-family, ranch-style house on a half an acre. It has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, two-car garage, and a full basement. They polled 527 home buyers, and it revealed that, besides that, the other desires that they wanted that were important to them was plenty of closet and storage space, security and privacy, proximity to work, storm windows and doors, plus smoke and fire alarms. The phrase interests me, the home, the ideal home, turning your house into a home. And yet, with all of those who were surveyed and the billboard advertisements, all of the focus is on the structure. It certainly takes a lot more than three bedrooms, two bathrooms, full basement, two-car garage, storm windows to make a home. In fact, while so many people are trying so hard to build their house, their home is suffering. Their home is in a shambles. The home life, the family life, the relationships that are under the roof of that house are often in disrepair. It is indeed a house without being a home. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 90% of all couples have two incomes and 67% of mothers with children under 18 are employed. Now, I I am sensitive to the fact that it takes a lot of work to make ends meet. We, We live in a culture that, because of abandonment or because of the high cost, it often takes the pulling together of energy and resources just to to earn a living. I guess the larger point I'm trying to make in all of this is that there is a difference between making a living and having a life, or... Uh, Building a house and having a home, there is a difference. I was a few weeks ago in North Carolina with my wife, and we were with a family, lovely Christian family, who always opens up their home to anyone who wants to come. But what was good about that evening is that among all of us was a neurosurgeon from Sarajevo who had suffered through the war who had treated patients through the war. Uh, We call him Dr. Joseph because his last name is too hard to pronounce, so it's just for us, Dr. Joseph. Well, Dr. Joseph, this neurosurgeon in Sarajevo, told us about where he lives and how there's no water supply and there's no electricity and how hard it is to do surgery in the dark under candlelight and those kinds of things. But he talked about where he lived 
And his house is a room about 12 feet by 18 feet. And he lives in that room with his family, all 12 of them. And uh, that's his immediate family and his extended family. And he talks about how at night they stay warm because they're shoulder to shoulder. It's like one long bed. And he was describing it, and then he got a smile on his face as he looked toward us who were just listening with rapt attention. And he says, I want you all to come. Come and stay with me. And he said this. He goes, I don't have a big house, but I have a big heart. And I thought, this guy has a home. This guy's got it wired. He knows what it means to have a home. Well, Psalm 127 is a psalm about building for the future, about where to expend and invest your labors, your toil, your efforts. It shows the difference between a life filled with anxiety and frustration an unfulfilling life, one where you just spin your wheels but never get anywhere, versus a life that is at rest, filled with satisfaction, in short, a life that is fulfilling. Let's read the psalm and then we'll take it section by section. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate." You can immediately see the twofold division. Verses 1 and 2 form the first part. Verses 3 through 5 form the second part. The first two verses focus on everyday life and the sheer vanity of living temporally. If that's all you live in is verses 1 and 2, it's empty, it's vain. And then the second part shifts uh, to the home life, the family life. The most important part of life, the relationships involved. You might say that the home is where life makes up its mind. It's the place where you and I, along with family members, hammer out our convictions, develop things that are valuable, like attitudes, character, those kinds of deeper issues. Notice uh, who this psalm was written by. Go back before verse 1 where it says, A Song of Ascents. That means that pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem would sing this psalm as part of their worship. But after that, it says not only a song of ascents, it's of Solomon. In other words, that's the author. He wrote this psalm. It's not a psalm of David or Korah or Asaph. This is a unique psalm written by Solomon. Now, that sort of gets our attention, I think. Here you have Solomon writing about the wisdom of living after important things, not just building a structure. The reason it gets our attention, two reasons he's qualified to write this. Number one, because he had wisdom. Not only did Solomon have wisdom, he had more wisdom than anybody else. Listen to what the description of this man is in 1 Kings chapter 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. 
Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East. And greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, he was wiser than any other man. Well, when you have something written by the wisest guy around on an issue like this, it pays to pay attention. Second reason he is qualified is because though he was wise, he was a failure at applying his own wisdom that God gave him. He had all of the wisdom greater than anyone else, and yet his own life was a life of failure spiritually, toward the end of his life especially. We know that uh, though Solomon writes here about the importance of the, the womb and the children and the Lord, that Solomon had 700 wives. It is difficult to even imagine that. This is polygamy taken to the max. 700 wives. That wasn't all. He had 3,000 or 300 concubines. That is, he had women around him that were part of his harem that weren't married to him. So he has a 1,000 women. My goodness. I'm not talking about a a thousand women as something bad, but one man with a thousand women. And and he still, after all of that, seemingly was unhappy. Now, the difficulty is that some of these women turned his heart away from the Lord. Actually, his heart was very vulnerable. But these wives, some of them turned his heart away from the Lord. So he writes this psalm, and because of those reasons, it's interesting. Now, we divide this psalm up into two sections, as I said, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 5. The first section is what I call a house built on vanity. He talks about physical things and hard labor, temporally, short-lived, not long-term. And then the second section a home that is built on values. He begins by saying, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman, the guy who looks to protect it, stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. You notice the threefold repetition of a word? What is that word? Vain. Anytime you have a word repeated three times in two verses, that's sort of a theme. That's the idea. That's the big idea. Vain, vain, vain. Now, we know, don't we, that Solomon kind of liked this word. He writes a whole book about it. If you go over a couple blocks in Scripture down the road, you come to Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes was the journal of a frustrated man during a very tumultuous episode in his life. The book of Ecclesiastes. A man who tries everything in life and gets burned out on life itself. A man who tries labor and fun and women and wine and song apart from God. And he says it's all vain, empty, frustration. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he uses the word vanity 33 times. He uses the word vain twice. And then he uses a phrase. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That is a Hebrew superlative phrase, by the way. It would be better translated this way. There's nothing more empty, there's nothing more futile than this. That's the idea. What is empty? What is futile? 
All of life lived apart from God. No matter what you do to fill yourself, it is empty. It is without meaning. And he gives us the journal in the book of Ecclesiastes. In other words, here's a man who's tried, done everything, and to him life is a treadmill. He goes round and round and makes lots of motion, but he never goes anywhere with it. And so in Psalm 127, using these words, he tells us the vanity of life, a house that is built on vanity. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city. So we have a house, a structure, a physical structure that needs building. We have a a physical city once built that needs surveillance or protection. Uh, In these verses, Solomon is describing the basic need that we have, the basic need for fulfillment that comes from creating something, building something, preserving something, expressing ourselves through uh, meaningful labor or work. But his point is that it's arrogant and frustrating to do that without the blessing of God. This is the outlook that says it's up to you to build your life. It's up to you to build your reputation. It's up to you to preserve your assets. You, you, you is the theme. And uh, Solomon has advice for that. Vain, 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 if you try to do it apart from God. Um, Solomon would know by personal experience about these two verses, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord protects the city. As soon as Solomon becomes the king over Israel, he becomes a, a massive builder The first thing he does, it seems, recorded in Scripture, is he makes a treaty, a contract, with a guy by the name of Hiram, who's the king of Tyre up in Phoenicia, Lebanon. And he gets um, cedar wood, cypress wood, beautiful stone, plus craftsmen from Tyre to be shipped down to Israel. In exchange, Solomon gives to Hiram up in Tyre wine, wheat, oil from Israel. So there's this exchange commerce program going on. Solomon gets the best materials, the best craftsmen, and he starts building. For seven and a half years, he builds the house of the Lord. That's what the temple was called, the house, the house of the Lord. Seven and a half years, he builds it. He builds his own house. It takes him 13 years. A little focus of priority here. God's house, my house. But the point is he builds prolifically. While he dedicates this house of the Lord to the Lord, God, this is your house and we're here to serve you, God has something to say to him. Listen to what God says. He says, if you or the kings who succeed you ever turn away from following me, this house will become a heap of ruins. Big, big stop sign. Big warning signal. Solomon, this is great. Thanks for the house. But if you ever turn away from following me, This is just going to be shambles. So Solomon the builder knows what it means when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. But Solomon was not only a builder, he was a protector. He built fortified cities, and he took cities that were defense cities and fortified them with gates. And if any of you ever come to Israel with us, we'll take you to a couple of examples, especially in the ruins of Megiddo, of a structure known as Solomon's Gate, built by King Solomon. It is a a gate that has sort of four interlocking gates attached to it. 
so that when the invader comes into the city by this gate, he is sort of trapped in a corridor facing a second gate. So that a guy with a bow and arrow standing up on top, poised, could pick off the invaders quickly. He'd have to go through this maze to get into the city. However, with all of this building, with all of this protection, the kings that came after Solomon turned their hearts away from God even more than Solomon did. And we know what happened in history. In history, God did not protect their cities, and they were all overrun. So, Again, this verse, how very important. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord keeps or guards, protects the city, it's all vain. I think these verses could also be addressed to people like Solomon, the overachiever, the workaholic, the one who has to build and create and protect and constantly go, go, go in his own labor. The person who has worked hard to build his house, his business, his corporation, his organization, church, his project, whatever. He builds that and it's really cool, it's great, it's successful. But the home is suffering. There's a proverb that I often bring up to this congregation, an old Greek proverb that says, if you always keep the bow bent, eventually it will break. Translated for our vernacular, if you live life with the pedal to the metal, something's going to give. And you know what usually gives? The family. Friends. Relationships. They can't withstand that incessant pressure in some of our lives. Douglas MacArthur II is certainly less well known than his famous uncle, General Douglas MacArthur. But Douglas MacArthur II served in the State Department when John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of the State. And uh, one evening, when um, Dulles phoned the home of MacArthur, he wasn't home, as usual. His wife, who picked up the phone and said, MacArthur isn't home, not knowing who was calling, simply said, MacArthur is where MacArthur always is. On Sundays, on Saturdays, on Fridays, in mornings, in the evening, at that office of his, she said bitterly. Well, as soon as Dulles hung up the phone, he picked it up again and called the office of Douglas MacArthur II. And he said, boy, go home at once. The home front is crumbling. The home front is crumbling. Could those words be given to some of us this morning? You've built the house, the structure, the business, the corporation. It's finely tuned, honed, managed, but the relationships are crumbling. I do know the need that there is to provide for your family, but with all of that security, they also need loving attention. There's an article that uh, was in Scientific American some time back, written by Yuri Bronfenbrenner. I had to write that name down. There's no way I could memorize that. Yuri Bronfenbrenner described the problems facing American families, especially those forces that are undermining the togetherness, the cohesiveness of what's important. He talks about the rat race. Here's his words. The demands of a job that claim mealtimes, evenings, weekends, as well as days... The trips and the moves necessary to get ahead or simply to hold one's own, the increasing time spent commuting, entertaining, going out, meeting social and community obligations, 
All of these produce a situation in which a child often spends more time with a passive babysitter than with a participating parent. Let me balance that out by addressing those parents who are involved in the rat race. On one hand, many a family has a hardworking dad or hardworking mom and dad to thank for their survival. And I do want to say, in the presence of everyone, our hats are off to you, that you provide, that you work hard, that you love your family to provide a good house, clothes, shelter, food. Um, That is noteworthy. That's important. Uh, You're passing on a work ethic, and that's good, and we thank you. But that mindset can be taken to an unwholesome, unbiblical extreme. And you can have what's described here, labor and watching that is in vain. That's the idea. So unblessed labor is vain. Notice now in verse 2, unnecessary anxiety. It is vain, there's his word again, for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. I think what's in view here is the artificial lengthening of a day. You have eight hours. No, I don't. I can have 12 or 14 if I want. I'll stretch it out. I'll cram so much into my day, and then I'll compound it with worry. Not only will I work hard, I'll worry about what I have done and what I didn't do. Listen to this verse in the Living Bible. It says, It is senseless for you to work so hard from early morning till late at night, fearing that you will starve to death. This is the worry wart. This is the overachiever type A worry wart. Anxiety ridden. It's the mentality that says, I can't sleep. There's so many problems on earth I haven't solved yet. So I'm going to get up and work them over in my mind. It will only produce sorrow. Notice in this verse, it seems that Solomon is telling us three things about worry. First of all, worry is exacting. It's exacting. It is vain, he says, for you to rise up early and to sit up late. When you worry over your personal empire, you are serving a tyrant. Worry becomes a tyrannical master. It never lets up. There's always more that it can send your way to worry about. It's exacting. Secondly, it's excruciating. He calls it the bread of sorrows. You know, worry preys on the mind, doesn't it? It torments you. It works you over. Thirdly, it is exhausting. Notice the contrast. He, that is God, gives his beloved sleep. Worry wears us out till our nerves are frayed, our tempers are short, our health is endangered. Notice he talks about here the bread of sorrows. You know what that means? The empty results of spending all of that energy, all of that worry, and coming up with a big fat zero, wearisome toil that is hollow. In a fairly new biography about George Lucas, the famous movie producer, describes George Lucas as a very successful multimillionaire young guy with great vision who has a bad marriage, is burnt out and frustrated on life, does not enjoy life, and he can't get out of it. He's built his house. He has built his empire. But his, his home is in disrepair. His home is in a shambles. I want you to think back to uh, the year 1851. It's not really that long ago, but a lot has changed since then. 
In the year 1851, the biggest thing, the latest thing that got everybody's attention was steam. Not computer chips. Not even electricity. Steam. And in London, England, in Hyde Park, there was something called the Crystal Palace Exhibition where people came from all over the world to see steam things, steam locomotives, steam looms, steam-powered organs. There was even a steam-powered cannon. And all of these contraptions that did something. But you know what won first prize? A steam gizmo. It had 7,000 moving parts. You turn on this whatever it was and... Huge gears would turn, pulleys would move, bells, whistles would make noise. What is ironic is it didn't do a thing. It had 7,000 moving parts that made lots of noise, but it accomplished nothing. And my point is, it's easy to confuse activity with accomplishment. To look at a life and go, something has to be important there. They're so busy. There's so much noise. There's so much activity. But it can be like this gizmo. Now, could that be true of your life? There's hundreds of moving parts and lots of motion, lots of activity, lots of plates spinning, but not accomplishing much. Oh, your gadget might win a, an award. But God is the final judge. Hence the word that he uses, vain. So that is a house that is built on vanity. Let's move now to the next part, verses 3, 4, and 5, which is really a, a, a home built on value. And you notice that nothing is said here about building a house or watching a city or worrying about it. There's a deeper level here because there's a difference, once again, between having a life versus making a living, between having a house or a home. There's a couple words, three of them, I want to point your attention to that, that bring me to the first sub-point, really, of this. And and that is the word Lord. Notice that it's mentioned in this psalm three times, his name, the word Lord. He's mentioned three times. He's implied once. So a total of four times the Lord is mentioned. Then I want you to look at verse 3, the word womb. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Now, the womb has to refer to the wife, right? Can't refer to anyone or anything else. And then uh, the word children, mentioned twice, but spoken about in detail in the last three verses. Now, that is a home. Here's my point. Relationships. It's not vain activities or worry or structure as much as who's in it. And what relationships do you have with the Lord, with your spouse, with your children? How connected are you? The the, the most vital portion of life is relationships. If you were to boil everything down and take everything else out of life, take all the veneer off of life, and boil it down to its irreducible minimum, you'd have relationships. That's all. Good relationships or bad ones? Few relationships or many relationships? A good relationship with God, a good relationship with a spouse, a good relationship with children, or very, very bad ones, so that you spend all of your time doing the peripheral house building and not much time in the home building. It's relationships. And yet, that's what we fail at so often, these very vital things. Remember when uh, Adam was put on the earth, as soon as God created him? Did God say, Adam, now that you're here, I'd like you to do some building. 
Now that you're here, I've got a job for you to do. No, the first thing, God said, it's not good that man should be what? Alone. He needs a woman. He needs a family. He needs a wife and kids. He he needs to be connected. It's not good that he should be alone. So it's those godly relationships with the Lord, with your spouse, with your children that make a house a home, a place of refuge, a launching pad, prepares you for life tactically. Professor Nick Stinnett, I want to share with you his findings. I shared with you the negative findings. Uh, Nick Stinnett was the um, chairman of the Department of Human Development and the Family at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, Nebraska. He decided to study what's good, not what's bad about the families, uh, what makes a strong family strong, uh, when it works, why does it work. So he studied families not only in the United States but in South America, South Africa, England, Austria, Germany, a few other places, to find out what are the common elements. This is what he found, quote, Altogether, we studied 3,000 families, collected a lot of information, but when we analyzed it all, we found six main qualities in strong families. Let me give them to you. Strong families, number one, are committed to the family. Sounds pretty obvious, but that's first on the list. Secondly, strong families spend time together. Thirdly, strong families have good family communications. Four, good families express appreciation to each other. Number five, good families have a spiritual commitment. And six, good families are able to solve problems in a crisis. The, the main umbrella there again is the relationship between each other. Well-connected, well-oiled relationships. Then next, I draw your attention to principally verse 3. A godly heritage. This is now life being passed on to the next generation. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. The more the merrier. Of course, when your quiver is full of them, sometimes you do quiver for a while with the responsibility. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Here's another translation of that. Children are God's best gift. In other words, God passes on those people to us. Not passes them off on us. Passes them down to us. They're a heritage. Now, I know that parents question this from time to time. Children are a heritage. No, no, no. Children are a nuisance from the Lord. No, they're a heritage from the Lord. Now, that is questioned when, let's say, they get to be teenagers and they know more than anybody on the face of the earth, especially mom and dad, and uh, you have that conflict. And you struggle with this heritage bit. Or they just were born. You're a brand new parent. You have this baby and your thoughts are, I didn't know it would be this loud in the house. I, do, I didn't know I'd lose this much sleep. One person described a baby as a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other end. Now, parents of newborns feel this way from time to time, no doubt. But in reality, children are people on loan 
from God. He says, here, I'm going to loan you this child, this life, and I'm going to let you participate in shaping its destiny, its future. Have it for a while, not forever. It's on loan. Hannah realized this in the Old Testament, book of 1 Samuel. She prayed for a child. God gave her Samuel. Recognizing that child was a gift alone from God, she said, therefore, I lend him to God all the days of his life. He shall serve God. He's on loan to me. It's a gift. I'll lend him back to God. Listen to this advice. One author said, all husbands and wives borrow their children. Our children are not our own. Our children belong to God. He has loaned them to us for a season. Most marriages contain these borrowed jewels. They are not ours to keep, but to rear. They are not given to us to mold into our image. They are not given to us so we can force them to fulfill our lives and thus in some way cancel our failures. They are not tools to be used, but souls to be loved. Now look at it this way. Your children, if you have them, are the only earthly possessions you could ever take with you to heaven. You can't take that 57 Chevy that you just restored. I hear people say, you know, I get to heaven. I think God's going to have this for me and that for me. That's, hey, forget that. Are you going to take your little watch? You know, I saved up for this watch. I'm taking it with me to heaven. As one person aptly observed, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, have you? You take nothing with you. But you can take your children. Notice this uh, wording. Like arrows. That's a description of children. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. I don't mean their description of children because they're sharp-pointed. That's not the idea. The idea is a warrior pulls out an arrow and launches it out toward a target, sends it in the right direction. The idea is that a child is here so that I can shape it to launch it where God wants it to go, he or she to go. And so in Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way that he should go. For when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we're to make sure, as best we can, that those kids hit the target as they're launched out. And let me just say this, frustrated parents especially. This world needs the kind of children that you can produce. The world needs Christian children who will grow up to be Christian teenagers, who will grow up to be Christian adults. The salt of the earth, the light of the world, this world is desperately in need of what God has given you as a heritage. And I agree with the person who said a a parent is simply a partner with God in making disciples of his children. That's why at baby dedications, we often pray for parents as well as the baby. Because there are certain things that are not taught but caught in a family. And so we pray that the parents will be the example of not only instruction but lifestyle for that child. So let me ask you this. Is the Lord the center of your home? Is he the center of your home? I'm not asking you, did you hang up a plaque that said he's the unseen guest at every meal? That won't cut it. Or, yes, I have a Bible. It's on the coffee table. Is he the center of your home, of your life, of your activities? Do you refer to him like you would to a close friend who lives there? Things like, son, I don't know, but we have to ask God. See what his will and direction is. That's the center of your home. A godly heritage. I remember as a child thinking about the time I'd be a parent. Remember that? Remember thinking what it would be like when you grow up? I remember these thoughts. I would think, you know, being a parent's pretty easy. 
especially if you have a lot of kids, because the kids do all the work around the house. The parents give all the advice. (laughs) I could do that. And do you remember, if you didn't think that thought, I bet you thought the next one. When I'm a parent, I won't do that. When I'm a father or I'm a mother, I won't act like that. Then you become one. And you get a dose of reality. And if you have four or five children, you have four or five mega doses of reality. And suddenly the tables are turned. You realize there's no such thing as a perfect parent. You certainly aren't one. It's on-the-job training, isn't it? And as somebody observed, the trouble with being a parent is that once you're experienced, you're, you're out of a job. Right? You're unemployed. You just get parenting down pat. They're grown up. I know how to be a perfect parent now. <laughs> Too late, they're in college. It's on-the-job training. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, but there are good ones. There are good ones. And there are those parents who take their parenting very appropriately in a, in a serious way that would say, this person is on loan. This person must be launched appropriately in the direction that God has for that child. And by the way, it is our responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. This church has your child for about 52 hours a year, maybe more. You have your child for 60 hours a week after school and other activities. It's our responsibility. Now, how can we do that? How can we treat the child as a spiritual arrow launched out by a warrior? Well, let me sort of sum it up by how Paul summed up relationships in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what he said. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. I think that sums it up. He was talking about love as the glue to relationships. And now he says, abide faith, hope, and love. Those three elements, apply those to the relationship with your children, with your wife, with your friends. Whether you are married or single, apply those three things, and they'll be healthy. But let's think of this heritage for just a moment. First of all, faith. There's no greater gift you can give your child than that example of a faith in Jesus Christ. And to be able to pass that legacy on, it's monumental. I have the opportunity of leading many people to Christ. But nothing was as precious and important to me as the day I prayed with my own son. And he said, Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. How exciting that was. It is a memorial in my mind that will always be there forever. Charles Spurgeon said, before a child reaches seven, tell him how to get to heaven. Faith. Second on the list, hope. Parents need to build hope in their kids. Because kids are looking uh, at life from this end. You've already walked there. You're looking backwards. They need to know they're going to make it. They need to know that God will be there for them. That God will shape and mold their lives, inspire hope and courage in them. And then third, and Paul says here, it's the greatest of them all, and that is love. And you know what the word means, agape, unconditional love. We need that constant affirmation, do we not, throughout life, of I love you. I say constant, it's not enough. And sometimes men are guilty of this. I told you I loved you when you were five. I'm a man of my word. I know guys that try to pull that off with their wives. It's on the contract, I love you. Kids, people in general need to hear, I love you. I loved you then, I love you now. I will always love you, no matter what you do or where you go. 
Even if you turn out like I don't want you to turn out, I'll still love you. That's unconditional love. Isn't that how God treats us? Wouldn't you say that God looks at us through Christ-colored glasses? Our imperfections through the blood of his Son and graciously deals with us, not according to our iniquities. Wouldn't it be great for the heritage God has given us to treat them that way? So those ads on the highway may tell you how to make a house into a prettier house, but it's not a home. Let me close with words by an unknown author about building the right things. I think oft times as the night draws nigh of an old house on the hill, of a yard all wide and blossom starred where the children play at will. And when the night at last came down, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, Are all the children in? Tis many and many a year since then, and the old house on the hill no longer echoes to childish feet, and the yard is still, so still. But I see it all as the shadows creep, and though the years have been, even now I can hear my mother ask, Are all the children in? I wonder if, when the shadow falls on that last short earthly day, When we say goodbye to the world outside, all tired with our childish play, when we step out into that other land where mother so long has been, will we hear her ask, as we did of old, are all the children in? And I wonder, too, what the Lord will say to us older children of his. Have we cared for the lambs? Have we showed them the fold? A privilege joyful it is. And I wonder, too, what our answers will be when his loving questions begin. Have you heeded my voice? Have you told them of my love? Have you brought my children in? Oh, what a difference there is between a house. As good as it is, laboring for the structure, the corporation, the business, as good as that might be, it's not worth it if that means we lose the home. Father, we thank you for the wisdom and even the experience of Solomon. I pray that we would not fail in so many ways as did this man who wrote so articulately and prolifically about these issues. I pray that we could be responsible with a good work ethic to provide and to put our nose to the grindstone and and all of that important stuff, but at the same time not lose what is most important and most valuable, relationships with you, with the spouse, with children. Strengthen the home. Strengthen our home. May it be a place of refuge, a place of instruction, a place of love, hope, faith, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.